Welcome to episode 143 of Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church for Christ Church and for all those who would uh, care to listen in. Uh, my name is John Payne. I'm the senior minister of Christ Church Presbyterian uh, here in Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm here with my uh, co host and dear friend, Dr. Gabriel Williams. Good to see you again, Dave. Good seeing you. And uh, Gabe, you are uh, all finished up with your semester at the Citadel, is that right? Yes, the semester finished about four or five days ago. Uh, final exams finished, graded, everything is done, so we're now officially on break. Fantastic. And uh, of course, some of our listeners will not know of the transition uh, that right. you made. Uh, of course, you taught at the College of Charleston as a professor in, in physics for how many years? About 10 years at the College of Charleston, and then this past fall, 2023, I took a position at the Citadel as, in one sense, it's meant to be a transition to a different type of position, becoming more physics-oriented rather than meteorology-oriented. And then it was just a good opportunity just in terms of institutional changes. Yeah, so, so what's it like wearing a uniform every day? <laughs> well, I'm one of those sort of people that it makes it easier because you have the uniform in the office and it's just there. And so that just means you come to work with normal clothes, you change and iron at work. When when work is done, you take your uniform off and you go home. So it, it takes out the effort in a lot of ways of just trying to find clothes to wear to go to work every day. I could see how that'd be very nice not to worry about what you're wearing every day. Um, well, I know they're thankful to have you over there. And of course, uh, one of our elders is a professor there as well, uh, Dr. Tom Clark. And uh, leads the uh, leadership uh, center there um, and uh, so it's great to have uh, as well one of our elders another elder's son is studying there uh, Capers Hester and uh, so it's really wonderful to have that uh, that presence there on campus and to be an encouragement to others and and a gospel witness well uh, great to be together again of course here we are right in the middle of uh, the Christmas season yeah about a couple of weeks away and so I did my last bit of shopping uh, I think yesterday went to them a post office and the line is all the way out the door already because I think we're at that two-week mark so if you don't get it in the next two days you're probably not getting it if you use uh, USPS <laughs> so what's what's one Christmas tradition your family has uh, it could be related to food it could be related to Christmas morning what's or Christmas Eve so the, the the tradition we often have in terms of what we've done I guess every year is that just like in Thanksgiving we have a turkey we have the same type of thing for Christmas and Alicia has spent a lot of time researching recipes on this so this is a five-day process of going through a wet brine for several days and then uh, taking it out and then we season it and then one of the things that the kids like is we actually name our turkey <laughs> <laughs> and so it used to be based upon various you know British monarchs that the kids were studying but we switched to the French uh, this time so we are in King Louis, <laughs> King Louis at this point but yeah that's our uh, standard kind of Christmas tradition for the dinner that we have. Oh, that's wonderful. One thing we do, Gabe, is um, really for the last 25 years of marriage, we've been collecting uh, Christmas ornaments. Mm -hmm. And so when we go on a trip, uh, we go to a new place, uh, we'll pick up a, a new Christmas ornament and put it up, which means that every year when we decorate our tree, 
uh, we'll have wonderful memories of all the different uh, places we've been and uh, experiences we've had and uh, really just reinforcing the faithfulness of God uh, to us and to our family. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful, <coughs> wonderful uh, time of year. Yeah, definitely. Now, <clears throat> in terms of uh, Christchurch itself, uh, we, uh, in terms of what's going on right now, uh, you took a pause in your current uh, sermon series on Romans. Uh, we're right at Romans 11, and we uh, began an Advent uh, kind of sermon series. And I will say, this is the first type of sermon series that I've heard in which there's a direct connection between the theology and meaning of Christmas and how it relates to the Reformed Confessions. And so, as I mentioned, I've never gone through anything like this before. But it is actually rather enriching because it forces us as a congregation to zoom in into what our confession, Westminster, and also the ecumenical creeds themselves have spoken about regarding the nature of Christ, the incarnation, his birth, and etc. And so the purpose of this podcast is to kind of give a big picture sense of why understanding what the creeds and confessions are saying is not just important in terms of our tradition <coughs> but it's important in terms of understanding what the scriptures themselves say about who Jesus Christ is and so I guess going to you John in one basic sense what kind of motivated you to kind of do a rather unique sort of sermon series taking the Christmas passages and relating it to the confessions and creeds I'd say one of the things that motivated me, uh, among others, which I'll mention, is that this time of year, people tend to get quote-unquote religious, mm. right? You, you have that, that funny word, creaster. You know, what's a creaster? Well, that's a, a, a person who goes to church on Christmas and Easter, exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, that feels a compulsion to go to church during this time of year for sentimental reasons. Um, perhaps they, as a child, went to church this time of year and have a kind of a sentimental approach to the faith where they want to be in church, they want to hear the stories of the Nativity, or perhaps at Easter want to, to go on Resurrection Sunday. And, and so uh, there are those who are in that category that would come to the church or attend churches um, and really not understand the depths of meaning That's right. that the, the uh, incarnation and birth of Christ have, um, or as it concerns Easter, the resurrection. Um, and so really, as well, uh, even this morning in our men's Bible study in Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, I have no trouble reminding you of these things, and uh, it's no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. And so getting back to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, uh, what it is we believe about uh, Jesus Christ, uh, the fact that he was and is the eternal word made flesh, uh, that he's not an emanation from God or created by God, that, you know, as you think about the early controversies in the church about the nature of Christ, um, whether or not he's the eternal son of God, uh, whether or not he is, was um, 
you know, truly became a human being? Uh, was he just a phantom? Uh, was he some strange mixture of the nature of God and the nature of man? All of these things were dealt with in the early centuries of the church, and our creeds and our confessions speak clearly about these things to give us a right and biblical understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so as we approach Christmas, I thought, it, wouldn't it be great to be reminded of, first of all, the importance of creeds and confessions as it concerns our orthodoxy as a church, as it concerns the fundamentals of our Christian faith and what we believe, uh, but also in particular as it relates to the incarnation and virgin birth, because our, our creeds and confessions speak about these things, don't they? That's right. And one of the things that I have constantly have heard here and have mentioned to others is that there are at least two basic reasons why we would care about consistency with the creeds and confessing them and so on one very practical level what creeds do is that they give you a safe guardrail because the most the scariest thing that you can be called as a christian is an innovative christian when it comes to theology we do not want to be the sort of people who believe that we can just invent the doctrine of the incarnation just because you know we had a few you know years under our belt in study? Remember that the actual doctrine of Christ was not just one person's study and it came to conclusion. This is a multi-century discussion, conflict with grave consequences. All of these things came together. We have received the bounty and the results of lots and lots and centuries of labor. So the point is that we're not trying to be innovative. We are receiving what has been given and we are faithfully trying to keep within that uh, tradition as stated. I think it was John Fesco who said in his book on creeds and confessions that we believe in uh, not in the dead faith of the living but in the living faith of the dead. So we've had, as you've said, this passed down to us in terms of creedal and confessional doctrinal formulations that are not just for seminarians and pastors, but for ordinary Christians. Uh, and and we, we've seen this come out in our heritage with catechisms, right? Uh, simple tools for discipleship in question and answer form. And, and catecheo, of course, means the echoing back, right, in, in the Greek uh, language. And so so when you have the uh, the parent asking the question and then the child answering the question, repeating the question and then and then giving the answer, that's the way that this doctrine is being rightly uh, passed down to our children, and then also where there's orthodox belief uh, that's had there rather than just trying to figure it all out for yourselves and every generation. Exactly. And then there's the reality that we do not want a faith that is disconnected from the Christians of the past. When we confess that we believe in the communion of the saints, at one minimum level that means that our faith is in connection and in continuity with them. And therefore when many Christians in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries were confessing these sort of creeds, we are in our worship services repeating that and saying that we stand in solidarity 
and in continuity with what the Christians from previous generations have basically proclaimed. So we don't believe that the church becomes reinvented every hundred years. Yes. We believe that Christ established his church once. We believe that the apostles faithfully proclaimed and preached what Christ himself preached. And we are faithfully, in our sense in this congregation, we are faithfully upholding what we have received. And so no better way to do that than to remember the fact that the creeds and confessions are, they're not time sensitive in the sense that it works only for the 16th or the fourth century. They're for the whole church to confess and to rejoice in together. So there would, of course, be those who are well-intentioned and uh, perhaps have never really been taught why creeds and confessions are important, but nevertheless would say it's more faithful as a Christian and more biblical as a church to reject creeds and confessions and look to the Bible alone. And so the, the old, I have no creed but Christ, I have no confession but the Bible itself, how, do, how would we respond to that kind of a challenge? There are two simple ways to respond to that thing. The first one is simply to say that virtually every uh, heresy that has ever appeared in the church in some way or fashion comes because a person says, I'm just reading the Bible, this is what the Bible means. So if you take the ancient Arian heresy, he would say, well, it says in Colossians that um, Jesus Christ was uh, begotten from God, so therefore that must mean that Jesus is less than God. And so every heretic that you will find in the church will in some way or fashion make an appeal to the bare words of the scripture. And so it's not enough just to say we believe the Bible, it is the meaning of the Bible that we care about. That's the first part. And then the second part, and this is something that uh, comes out in uh, Carl Truman's older book on creeds and confessions called the Credo Imperative. It's not a matter of if you have a creed versus not having a creed. It's a matter of whether or not you have a public creed that can be defended, scrutinized, and articulated versus having a creed that is purely internal, subjective, and therefore uh, completely outside of the scope of public criticism and scrutiny. And I would argue as well that to have a highly reductionistic creed, a kind of statement of faith, you know, on your website that, you know, is f f five sentences, yeah. that there's so much left out there, there's so much left to the individual leader or pastor or Christian to define on their own that it actually is very unhelpful and and as you say uh, as you mentioned before for a church to be confessional and for the leaders to have to sign off on and take vows to uphold to teach and to defend that confession is actually a safeguard for the congregation That's right. um, because then they know that this is the standard of doctrine to which the leaders are held accountable exactly. if that's not there then the pastor every other week could get up and change their views and that often happens where there's a massive change of views in something and suddenly the pastor is teaching on something and the congregation is like what in the world is going on here well if there's no standard of doctrine if there are no regulations there then that can happen exactly and then kind of the third point and this kind of gets us to where we are in the confession in chapter eight in today's world 
Uh, well, in the past, you could say that people disagreed about the meaning of the Bible and therefore creeds helped to clarify that. In today's world, we have a situation where people will deliberately distort the meaning of words and fill it in with whatever interpretation that they want. And so words like incarnation, which had a historic, very stable meaning, now today can mean all sorts of different things depending upon who's saying it. And so one reason that creeds become important and confessions is that it specifies it with clarity so that you can actually ask someone, what do you mean when you say the virgin birth? What do you mean when you say the incarnation? What do you mean when you say very God or that Jesus divine? Do you mean one among many? Is he very God or very God? So confessions in this sense have a way of clarifying things that in today's world are often deliberately made vague. One of the reasons why the PCA was formed 50 years ago, this month actually, this is the 50th anniversary of the PCA, why it was formed in 1973 was coming out of the mainline liberal denomination who was ordaining uh, men who outright rejected the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, who outright rejected the virgin birth because it had become, Christianity had become so highly subjectivized that it really, they thought, would save Christianity if you would subjectivize it and make it about your experience. Because to try to defend Christianity on its own terms with miracles, um, with things like the virgin birth and the resurrection, uh, is to one day see Christianity die out. Uh, because the, the more... Uh, you know, educated we become, um, the more sophisticated we become as a humanity, the less likely people are going to think that things like this happened. Um, but we see that as, uh, as absolutely not true. Uh, the Christian faith is founded on these things, and there are reasons why we believe these things, not least the doctrine of Scripture. Um, but also, we have a theology that explains why it is not only good, but necessary that Christ was born, uh, uh, that he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit um, and, and born in Bethlehem. Uh, and that's kind of what the sermon series is about, is to explain why these things not only are good things and true things, but also necessary if we are going to be saved. And in the ecumenical creeds you mentioned earlier, which are creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the, the Nicene Creed, we, we have statements um, specifically about what we remember at Christmas. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, uh, written in the early centuries of the Church. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so, uh, the Christians have been confessing this for centuries, since the early days uh, of the Church. And we, in that uh, uh, communion of saints, confess that with them. And then, of course, the Nicene Creed, uh, which comes out of the Council of Nicaea. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. So if there's any confusion there about whether or not Christ is God and of the same substance of God, we have this language here. God of God, Jesus was light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, uh, 
by whom all things were made. Uh, so what a high Christology that is. And going to chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession, much of what you just heard there in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed is restated uh, to emphasize the point that this is not novel, this is following what has been passed down. So chapter 8, looking at paragraph 2, says the following, The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, so that's the Nicene Creed language there, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, so that's a reference to Galatians chapter 4, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. So that statement deals with a collection of heresies in the first two centuries on whether or not Jesus Christ was truly human. And the Creed and Confession says, yes, he is truly God and truly man, yet without sin. Then it continues, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, directly from the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, therefore making Jesus Christ truly human. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. So that's a reference to what is known as the definition of Chalcedon, which speaks about the later controversies related to how does the divine and human nature of Jesus relate to one another. And we all confess that the human and divine nature are separate and united together on one person. It's not converted, meaning the divine nature didn't transform to the human, nor vice versa. It's not composition. They're not blended together to get some third sort of thing. And it's not confused. And so the conclusion is, which person, Jesus Christ, is very God and very man, yet one Christ, two natures, one person. And this is why this is relevant, because this is in the chapter of Christ the Meteor. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So all of that glorious Christology just stated there is because this is giving the reason why Jesus Christ can only be our mediator. It is necessary for him to be God, and it is necessary for him to be truly man. Both of those are needed for our redemption. And that's why this glorious Christology appears right when it comes to the question of Christ as our mediator. Amen. And we have these truths, of course, underscored in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, the, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, the Belgic Confession of 1561, uh, uh, the First and Second Helvetic Confessions, uh, the Calvin's Catechism. Uh, we, we just have these things being reinforced over and over again uh, in order to bring uh, a faithful uh, instruction, doctrinal formulations that are biblical, that come straight out of the Bible, um, but put them in summary form in order to teach us about who Christ really is. Uh, because you could sit and listen to a minister, say in a mainline liberal church, 
and you hear them using all the right words, but what they mean by them is something totally different. Uh, and so you have uh, what my late mentor used to say, uh, the same words being used, but with different dictionaries. And so you have a different dictionary, really, in the mind of whoever's saying those words than, than we would have. Uh, and our dictionary really is the confessions. Uh, we look to our confessions as those faithful descriptions of, of doctrine. And, and someone might say, well, is it really biblical? Well, yes, it's biblical. It's biblical to have a confession of faith. It's biblical to have sound doctrine. Uh, as Paul writes about uh, the uh, sound pattern of words, uh, um, and he actually, in, well, in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews uh, declares this, in verse, chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Well, the question you have to ask is, what is the confession of our hope? Exactly. The confession of our hope is our confession of the truth. Exactly. The next question is, well, what is the confession of our truth? You can't just simply say, well, the Bible, because the Mormons would say the same thing. Exactly. Jehovah's Witnesses would say the same thing. Other uh, uh, sects and uh, false teachers would say the same thing. Uh, so what is the confession of our hope? Well, it's the confession that has been set down, scrutinized, examined, and embraced uh, by the Reformed Church. That's what we hold to as the confession of our hope. Uh, and so we need to hold fast to that without, without wavering. Exactly. And so that brings us to Again, one of the things that's useful in terms of pulling this together for the life of the Christian is that we we spend time defining theological terms and being specific, not just because we are the sort of people who are overly contentious, but this is meant to lead to worship. This is meant to lead to contemplation of what actually happened at Christmas. As we just read, we're speaking about the eternal Son of God taking upon himself human nature, yet without sin. What that means in terms of the worship and adoration of the Christian is that we have a God who is so near to us that he sent his son to take upon our nature, that we don't have a distant God who is unlike us and completely distinct from us in the sense of being separated from us. But when we say Jesus Christ as Emmanuel, God is with us. He is near us, and he has proven it, uh, both in terms of what we see in the Incarnation and also what we see later on in the actual work that Christ did on the cross for our salvation. And so part of why we are specific about what we are claiming about Jesus Christ is because it's meant for us to pause, to wonder, and reflect about who it is we are worshiping. I think one of my favorite uh, Christmas hymns is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Mm, yes. And one of the stanzas says, Christ our God to earth has descended. And that itself should make someone pause, is that the glorious Son of God in perfect fellowship and love with the other members of the Trinity, the Father and the Spirit, Christ our God, he left that actual glory, so to speak, and he has descended and taken upon himself human nature. And the question is often asked, why did God become man? Why did the Son of God 
take on, uh, assume human flesh? Well, the answer is, and this is stated in our confessions, that it was human flesh that fell into sin. And it's human flesh that would save us from our sin. Exactly. And so Adam failed to obey. We failed to obey. God sent his son into the world to do that which Adam and we failed to do. He was born without sin because he was born supernaturally. Mm-hmm. That point is made over and over again. The Hadaburg Catechism says in question 36, how does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? Answer, he is our mediator and in God's sight he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. So Psalm 51.5, David says, in sin my mother conceived me. And so he is making it clear that we are all born with the sin of Adam. We, are, we all inherit that sin. We're born in sin. Christ was born in innocence. And in innocence, he was born of the Virgin Mary without sin. And it's without sin that he lived his entire life in perfect obedience to the law. And then as a perfect law keeper, laid his life down on the cross and became the perfect sacrifice and substitution for us, bearing our sin, our shame, our guilt, and receiving God's wrath in our stead and then paying the wages of sin, which is death. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And so that gospel has, uh, it has the ring of good news. This isn't some sentimentalism. Um, Christmas time, according to the culture, is about merriment and uh, fun music and exchanging gifts and Christmas trees. And those things in and of themselves are not bad, but when they replace uh, or give more, gain more attention than that of the incarnation and birth of Christ, which is the gospel, the good news of a Savior who was born in Bethlehem, then we have turned our eyes away from that which is most meaningful, that which we ought to be treasuring in our hearts and, and, and confessing with our mouths with great joy, like the angels had and, and like Mary had and the shepherds. That is where we need to get back to as, as serious Christians and followers of Christ. And so doctrine matters. Uh, doctrine unites, actually, when it's held into a confession where people come together. Um, and doctrine is for life. It, it translates, as you said earlier, Gabe, into a life of gratitude, a life of faith, uh, and, and uh, a life of, of growing godliness. And so... Uh, what a blessing it is to reflect upon these things and to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior uh, on Christmas Day. Amen. What I want to do here, kind of to end this, is to look at what the Westminster Larger Catechism says about the question you just asked: Why did God become man? And this is question thirty-nine: Why was it requisite or necessary that the mediator should be man? So the answer is. It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons, and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of Mm -hmm. grace.
Mm. And so thinking about one of the blessings of meditating upon the incarnation of the Son of God, Christ our God descended, taking on upon himself human nature, so that we, as Romans 8 would say, would receive adoption of sons. We're no longer orphans or chosen of wrath. Because of the incarnation, we are now adopted as part of God's family. So we thank you for the time we've taken to listen to this podcast, and we hope to see you again next time.